Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Last week in our study of the book of Romans, Pastor Murphy showed us that Adam was the cause of sin and death and that Christ is the cure. Today we'll study more on the reality of sin and our topics for the remainder of chapter 5. Okay, open your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter number 5. And we are going to commence our reading from verse number 12 of this chapter. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is a figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as by one that sin, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one the free gift comes upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we open your word tonight and we want to present the truth in it to your people. We need a teacher and we need your Holy Spirit who is the great illuminator to teach us. We can plumb the depths of your word. We can try to decipher its contents. But ultimately, its meaning comes to the spirit who helps the believer to understand what God says. And tonight, I pray that you would put eyes on our eyes so that we can perceive the truths that we have in your word. Help us to gird up the loins of our minds. And remind us that we are dealing in the realm of truth. Not fiction or myth. Not legends. But truth. 
And because we're dealing in the realm of truth, we ought to give the more earnest heed to what your word says. Lord, I, I pray you'll give our people a heart for your truth and a heart for your word. I pray that we would understand that the mind needs to be engaged. And it requires concentration. It requires effort on our part. And I pray, Father, that we would see the benefits of that in the lives of your people. All of us want greater freedom. But there's only one thing that can set us free, and that's the truth. And that's why we need to take in more of the truth of your word. And as we take in the truth and we understand the truth, comprehend the truth, appropriate the truth, and apply the truth, something marvelous happens in our lives. We have greater freedom. We have greater emancipation. It's a mystery. But the mystery of what your word does in our lives. I pray this evening as we spend some more time around this great epistle. That you would help me to do justice to its contents. Oh Father. Use your word. Use your word to edify your people. To strengthen your people. Lord, to provide answers to issues, to give them assurance, to offer comfort. May they find in your word the medicine chest that is there for every remedy and every disease that is needed, that the remedy is there. Thank you so much for the treasure. May we see it as treasure. May we treat it as treasure. And may we hoard it as treasure but also maybe share it as treasure we pray for your help now as we look into your word in Christ's name Amen and we've had such a, a tremendous break between the last time I dealt with Romans and now tonight I'm going to pick up the thread that I left and try to string it back together I think it's important for me therefore as I commence once again to rehash what this great epistle covers to remind you exactly where we are in this epistle. Paul, you recall, is writing to a church that he had not founded. The Apostle Paul indicates this in this very book, in chapter 1, verse 8 to 15, and also in chapter 15, verse 23 to 24. In those passages, the Apostle Paul explains that he had made several attempts to go to Rome but every attempt he made was abortive. Something happened, something intervened, and Paul was not able to go to Rome. But Paul was a wise strategist, a wise missionary strategist. So Paul was always focusing on what is called the urban centers of this world. Rome was the capital of the ancient world. And this is why Paul saw a necessity of him going to Rome. So even though he had made several attempts that were abortive, he kept trying to head to Rome because this was his obsession. He was concerned to establish a church within the urban center of Rome. Everyone here knows that the, 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 uh, the city is a place of finance. It's a place where you find most people where there's culture and education and commerce and influence. And therefore, the strategist that Paul was, it is not surprising that he made Rome his goal. 
Paul felt that if he was able to establish a church in Rome, he would have the financial resources and the human resources that he can now evangelize the rural areas and start what is called satellite churches, sister churches. And so he was obsessed to go to Rome. If you look into the epistle, you'll find that because the Apostle Paul could not, and he was frustrated in attempts to get to Rome, he did the next best thing that he could. And that is, since he couldn't be there in person, the Apostle Paul penned an epistle to these Romans. And the Apostle Paul wants them to understand the fullest knowledge that he has of the gospel that had been entrusted to him. He's concerned that they understand what this gospel that he preaches is all about. So he wrote to these uh, believers. And in a very logical way, the Apostle Paul presents the glory of the gospel. In chapter 1, verse 16 and 7, the Apostle Paul states his theme. And he states it this way. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and to the Greeks. And then he adds, for therein is the rights of God revealed from faith to faith, for the just shall live by faith. And then he adds these words, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. So what Paul does, he tells them what the gospel is. It's the good news about Christ. But he also tells them why they need the gospel. They need the gospel because wrath is on man's head. Whether man believe it or not, man is in a precarious condition. Every single human being on planet earth, the wrath of God dangles over his head by the thin thread of divine mercy. And it can break any moment and bring that man to doom and condemnation. And so the apostle Paul wants them to understand not only what the gospel is, but why they need the gospel? Because the gospel indicates that man is under divine wrath. Now the question of course that Paul next answers, why is man under wrath? The apostle Paul spends chapter 1, chapter 2 and chapter 3 explaining that the Jews are under wrath. The Gentiles are under wrath. The whole world is under wrath. And the whole world is guilty before God because men have offended God in two ways. Man is ungodly and because man is ungodly, man is unrighteous. Unrighteousness flows from man's ungodliness. When man turns away from God, man turns towards sin. So man is morally guilty before God. That is why the Bible charges man with moral guilt. Here's the next question that Paul answers. Why is man morally guilty before God? And what Paul does, the Apostle Paul shows us that man has willfully, knowingly, deliberately preferred to live an autonomous life independent of God and to turn his back on God. But is this charge valid? In what way did man turn his back on God? And here's what Paul points out. That there was a time when man knew God. And God revealed himself to man. 
And man willfully, knowingly, volitionally turned his back on God. The Apostle Paul answered the question of how did man know God? And Paul said that man knew God in three ways. He said, number one, man knew God as a result of creation. By the way, you know, I, I was going to bring a computer here this evening with me and, and just leave it in the pathway. And I was going to walk down and pick up the computer and bring it here and say, what is this? It just happened. Not one of you would ever believe it just happened. But I was going to take that computer and try to, try to work it. And, and, and I, I would come to certain conclusions. And this is one of the conclusions. Somebody made that computer. Now, could I tell you that this world is far more complex than the computer? That one cell in your body, one single cell is more complex than the greatest computer that man makes. But yet man finds it hard to believe in God. The other thing I was going to take that computer and show you that it will show me that whoever made this is intelligent. But not only whoever made this is creative. This is Paul's point in the book of Romans. That man knew God because man saw the artifact that God made the world. And from what the world is, man can decipher two things about God. His eternal power and Godhead. That he's eternally powerful. And he's the God of the universe. And God charges man that you knew me because you had knowledge of me. I reveal myself to you in creation. But Paul doesn't stop there. The apostle Paul goes on to argue that God also revealed himself in our conscience. That the moral law of God was written in our conscience. That every man knows right from wrong. Every boy and girl knows right from wrong. There's not a question whether or not there's a right and a wrong. There are transcendent moral laws that God has written in your heart. So when a man does wrong, when a child does wrong, he does it quite deliberately. They have the witness of conscience. Where did your conscience come from? How do you know right from wrong? Is there not a transcendent supreme being? How would there be anything called right from wrong? See? So Paul says, number two, God revealed himself in human conscience. That is called general revelation. But then the apostle Paul goes a step further. And when he was dealing with the Jews in particular, he said that man knew God in another way. He said, man, God gave man the law, the moral law. The Jews had the, the Gentiles did not have the moral law, but the, the, the Jews had it. And Paul condemns the Jew, that he condemns the Gentile. That even though they had the law of God and knew God, they turned away from God as well. See? And then we would add, there's a fourth way in which God revealed himself. He revealed himself in Christ Jesus who came to planet earth. A historical person. In time and space, God intervened and brought his son. And man turned his back on his son and crucified himself. So the point that the Apostle Paul is making here is that man is morally guilty before God under divine wrath. But then Paul tells us something else. He tells us there's good news. See? 
So having demolished man and having brought man to the point of human guilt, having tried man in the court of divine justice and found man morally guilty, the Apostle Paul now opens a window of opportunity and shows him that it is because of this that God intervened. And that's what the good news is all about. That when man was in this dire condition under divine wrath, God intervened and God sent his son to die for us. And so what the Apostle Paul wants us to understand that today we can be justified, we can be reconciled by God through the death of his son. You find that in chapter 4 where Paul deals with the whole doctrine of justification by faith. So in chapter 1, 2, and 3, he condemns man. In chapter 4, he explains the doctrine of justification. And then when Paul is finished with that, he does a third thing. He now deals with the whole matter of the believer's security before God. And Paul spends an exhaustive amount of time in chapter number 5 dealing fairly extensively with the basis of our security. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul says that our security is grounded in seven marvelous facts. And he itemizes them as though he lists them. Paul says, we are in the position of safety and security because we have peace with God in verse number one. The war is over and amnesty has been granted. And God has said, I am no longer at war with you. We are at peace. See? He's not talking about the peace of God. He's talking about the peace with God. Two different things altogether. The man who puts his faith and trust in Christ and is redeemed. He is a man who has peace with God. See? The war is over. Secondly, Paul says, we have access and we stand in grace. Not only do we have peace, we have the favor of God. That's where our standing is in grace, not in law. In grace. So we have access to the grace that we need. We also stand in the grace of God, the favor of God. That's the second basis of man's security. Nothing is dependent upon you. It is God's favor that guarantees that you will make it. And by the way, we're different. Not one of us would get there. None of us would be sure. But we not only have access to grace, Paul said we stand in grace. That's how God... Number three, the Apostle Paul says we have the hope of the glory of God. Now hope is not that I... Hope it will happen. I, I trust it will happen. The word in the New Testament has to do with, I anticipated something is, is going to happen. It is a certainty. We have the certainty of the hope of, of, the, of the glory of God. And then number four, Paul tells us that even tribulation is working on our behalf. No tribulation that we will ever experience in life can even drive us out of God's favor, out of God's love. Nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing. As a matter of fact, Paul goes on to say that tribulation is working on our behalf. Tribulation works with patience. Patience works with hope. See? So even what we think is against us 
is actually working in our favor. The Apostle Paul is piling argument upon argument because one of the greatest problems believers have has to do with their security. They get saved and then the enemy says, oh, you know you're saved. And then he tells you you're saved, go ahead and sin because you're saved. And then after you sin, he says, well, if you were saved, how would you sin? We're dealing with a master craftsman. Very, very, very subtle. And then, of course, number five, Paul says, the another thing that guarantees our security is that we have what is called the experiential love of God shed abroad in our hearts. This is not now head knowledge. The word that Paul uses there, the love of God shed abroad in our heart, has to do with the Holy Spirit shedding God's love in our heart. Experientially, we know that God loves us. Not that we can say what the Bible says so, but we come to the point where we are aware of that love in our lives. Especially when we are going through times of difficulty and hardship and we feel abandoned. Then the Holy Spirit comes in and ministers to us and we have that sense of divine favor, divine love. And then number six, the Apostle Paul uses what I call the logic of God's actions towards us. And this is a fascinating passage, by the way. Paul uses if-then equations. And Paul says, if when we were weak, without strength, morally weak, if when we were ungodly, that is spiritually dead when we were practicing sinners, when we were weak and when we were ungodly and when we were sinners. You know what Paul says? Christ died for us. Now think about it. If Christ died for us and loved me so much that when I was extremely wicked and evil, he died for me. Paul said much more now that he's done that, he'll do much more for you. It's the logic. The logic of what Paul is saying. So Paul talks about our condition. We were morally weak. We were spiritually dead. We were practicing sinners. And then Paul said God acted and commended the love to us. And Christ acted and, was, and uh, surrendered his life for us. And then Paul said there were four eternal consequences of that. He said that we are justified by the blood. Verse 9. And by the way, I like what he says. We are now justified. Not we will be. We are now justified. See? We are now declared righteous. Underscore that word now. You don't have to wait in the future. Now before God you are justified. Declared righteous. The moment you put your faith and trust in Christ. Now. I repeat now. See? And I keep reminding you that there is such a thing in the law courts of the world called double jeopardy. If a man's acquitted of a crime, you can't charge him for the same crime again. Everybody know that O.J. Simpson was guilty of murdering his wife? I don't think there's anybody who questions that anymore. But nothing can be done. The court has declared him not guilty. That's the court of men. But think of the court of God that is so gracious and so loving and so compassionate. And the Apostle Paul's argument is this, that we are justified by the blood in verse number 10. He said that we are reconciled. By the way, you only need reconciliation because there's been an argument, a disagreement between you and a person. You're alienated. Paul is saying that Christ brought us back together. He reconciled us to God. 
Not just justified, legally declared righteous, but justified, restored to a friendly relationship. All the enmity is gone. And then Paul adds in verse number 9, we shall be saved from the wrath to come. And then in verse number 10, he says, we shall be saved in this life or the power of his life. So not only the peace of God, our access and our standing in grace, not only the hope of the glory of God which is guaranteed to us, not only the fact that tribulation is working on our favor and nothing that will come our way will ever, ever separate us from God. Also, God's experiential love shed abroad by the Holy Spirit, the logic of Paul's action, and then the seventh argument that Paul uses is that we are in Christ. I do not know if you fully understand what that means. But it means, and he will argue, by the way, in this chapter, that you were once in Adam. Imagine that I was once in Adam. I'm in the glass. Okay? I'm in Adam. When I get saved, God takes me out of Adam, and now he puts me in Christ. See? I don't know if you, you get that? You really understand what that means? That God no longer sees you in Adam. He sees you in Christ. Can there be greater security than that? This is why the Apostle Paul spends so much time laboring. Because he knows that one of the great struggles we have in the Christian faith is this whole matter of security. And therefore he wants to have us assured of this matter. Now from verse number 12 to verse 21 which is the final section of chapter 5, the Apostle Paul concludes this final section by explaining the whole mystery of human sin and death and God's solution in Christ in a summary form. What he does in this section from verse number 12 to 21 is that he contrasts the first Adam and the second Adam, the first man and the last man. And he's going to show you that the way God looks at humanity, uh, people are either in this Adam or they're in the second Adam. The solution to this problem is to get out of here and get in here. This is what Paul is going to show you. And he's going to explain in this passage. He will show that Adam was the cause of sin and death. And he will show that Christ is the cure for sin and death. What the first Adam did, the second Adam cancels and reverses. That's the whole theme that you have here in this final section of Romans chapter 5. So I want us to look at five thoughts from this final section. First of all, in verse number 12, the Apostle Paul deals with the reality of sin. I want to talk about that for just a moment, the reality of sin. Secondly, in verse number 12b, he deals with the universality of death. Not just the reality of sin, but the universality of death. That because of sin, the whole world has come under the curse of death. Thirdly, in verses 13 to 14, he gives us what I call the historicity of the, the book, the Genesis account. Genesis 1 to 3. He speaks as, with Adam as though he was a historical person. And by the way, if you ever surrender the first three chapters of Genesis, you have no salvation. 
You have no Christ. And if, if Adam was not a historical person, Jesus Christ was not a historical person either because he equates the first Adam with the second Adam. And he emphasizes the historicity of Genesis chapter 1 to 3. And by the way, I need not say this. I've said this more than once on the pulpit. The greatest center of attack today when it comes to the Bible is which book? The book of Genesis. Book of Gen that is where the attack is. Creation is a myth. Death existed before there was an Adam. That's what evolution teaches, by the way. So in the process of evolving, these things were dying and evolving and dying and dying. The Bible said death came in after sin. There was no death before sin. And that is why we'll talk about the historicity of the book of Genesis chapter 1 to 3. And then in verses 15 to 19, he points out the sufficiency of Christ in the sense that everything Adam did, Christ undo it. Cancel it. Adam was disobedient, Christ was obedient. Adam bought condemnation, Christ bought redemption. He will point out very clearly by drawing several contrasts between the first Adam and the last Adam, showing you the complete sufficiency of Christ. Everything that Adam brought to planet earth that brought curse, every one of those things was neutralized. Christ is the antidote to the human condition. And then finally in verse 20 to 21, he talked about the utility of the law. Because Paul, as a Jew, always have to explain, okay, if what you're saying is, oh, what was the purpose of the law? So you find in the end of that chapter, Paul begins to answer the whole question about utility. What's the, what the law was supposed to be used for? What God intended the law for? So these are the five things that you'll find in this final section. The reality of sin universality of death, the historicity of the book of Genesis 1 to 3, the sufficiency of Christ, and the utility of the law. Now I want, before I go any further in dealing with these matters, I want to share with you how this chapter has helped me recently. And there's one thing for a preacher to be preaching. And there's something that happens, you, 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 you're preaching it, and then finally the application comes to you so clearly. Most of you know that recently we had a, a service function here at the church. I don't know if you noticed, but before we did that, the people from the states came down and they came to inspect the property. To see if it was suitable for what they wanted to do. One of the gentlemen that came down is the leader of this group. And after Stephen had been around the property for almost a half an hour and looked at the property and so on, I invited him into the office. And I said, could we have a conversation? And we had a conversation. We began to talk. And I don't have to tell you, it was not very long before the matter of religion came up and the matter of Christ. I began to understand something about this young man. Number one, I realized he was a theist. He believed in God. But then I also realized something that he was also a pluralist. What he believed, he not only believed in the Christian God, he believed there are many ways to God. And he believed that every single religion has some truth element in it that will lead those followers, those votaries, those patrons to God. 
Now I know I had a difficulty there because I got a guy who's trying to help the people of Antigua. I got to be very watchful now that, uh, you know, I don't turn him off to the point where he said, well, we're going to find another church. So I was toying in my mind, God, what is the answer? What's the answer? If there are so many religions and all these religions ultimately lead to God, the question I ask him then, how do you know which religion is true? Because all of them don't teach the same thing. And then it hit me just like that. He said, Pastor, how do you know which religion is true? And immediately Romans came to me, Romans chapter 5. And here was the answer to the question. I said to him, I said, let me give you an answer now. And here's a simple answer. I said, settle one question. And if you can settle that one question, you will find the answer. Of course, that arouses curiosity. What's the one question? I said, Stephen, the one question you must settle when it comes to what religion is true is this. Ask the question, what is really wrong with man? What is man's problem? What's the fundamental? I said, if you can settle the question, what is wrong with man, then we can look at which offers the best solution. I didn't go any further with him. I didn't go any further. But you know, when he came back here, he said to the pastor, you know, I've been thinking about what you said. I really been, I put a seed in his mind. That if he can solve the question of what is really wrong with man, what's man's problem, then you can decide what is the real problem with man. Now here's a man who's Jewish, a man who's a medical engineer, a man who had a successful profession, but yet he surrendered his profession to become a philanthropist. He has helped invented medical machines. But he's, he gave that all up. To do charity work. So here's a man that cares for people. Here's a man who's a humanitarian. Here's a man that has founded four charities. They support children going to school in Jamaica. Here's a man who is religious. But who's opposed to the exclusivity of Christ. He cannot accept that Christ is the only way, the only truth. And Romans chapter 5 told me, get him to answer that one question, what's wrong with man? And once he can answer that question, he will come to the answer is what's the solution, which is the right church, which is the right ministry, right, which is the right religion. Now let me show you why that's important. Let's take the four major religions for just a moment and ask that question. What do these religions say is wrong with man? Let's take Islam. The rival to Christianity. Christianity got one, I think 1.5 billion. And I think that Islam is very close, like a billion. Very, very, very close. But what's the problem with man according to Islam? Study it. Islam said that man is not a sinner. Study Read it. Man is not a sinner. What happens when he comes into the world? He comes in pure. And then the world contaminates. He has no sinful nature. So what's the answer then to the man problem? Since man is not a sinner, what man needs to do is to learn submission to God, to so obey the Quran. Go to Mecca. See? Take Hinduism. 
What do they say is the main problem with man? You know what the main problem man according to Hinduism? He's ignorant. He needs to be enlightened. He doesn't know that he's God inside. He just needs to be informed that he is God. But what has happened that he's now living in a world of delusion. So what's the answer to man's ignorance? Get a guru and let him teach you that you're God. Learn to meditate. And get into the higher heights of higher consciousness. And you would mesh with God. What about Buddhism? What's the real problem with man according to Buddhism? Is that man has desires. And man's problem is his desires. So the way to deal with his desires now is to have right thinking, right education, right everything. And there's seven things that if you got right, you're okay. So the way you solve the problem according to Buddhism is that you need to discipline yourself to do the right things. What does Christianity say? That man's problem is that he's a sinner before God, guilty before God, under wrath. And that what man needs is forgiveness and pardon and a restored relationship with God. Now you see what, you see the answer, you see, the, you see the, when, when the Spirit of God just gave me that, I was so amazed that I was teaching this thing and didn't understand the practical application and ramification of what I've been teaching. We spoke on the phone again and he keeps saying to this, Pastor, I'm thinking about what you're saying. What you told me, I'm just thinking about it. Because I can tell you one thing. That is the answer. If he can settle that one question, what is really, really wrong with man, he'll discover one thing. The only answer to man's problem is Christianity. That is why Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And he's the only door. So you know, we come to a passage like this. And we don't seem to understand the practical application. Oh, doctrine, doctrine, dry old doctrine all the time. Pastor, we should watch a movie. You know, we should have some kind of a documentary. You're engaging my mind. I don't want to think. I want somebody to think for me. The day will come when you will understand that all you have to depend on is truth. Nothing else to be there but truth. See? Nothing else can hold you but truth. You may not appreciate the matter of teaching doctrine for the pulpit, but that day is coming when you realize the value of sitting and listening and girding the lungs of your mind and absorbing truth. Don't worry about five ways to deal with my problems. How to brush my teeth three ways. You know. How to do exercises that will solve in my ear. That's what people enjoy. All they want to pablum all the time, baby food, milk all the time. They can't handle meat. And the moment you begin to deal with meat, they fall asleep. Disengage their minds. And I can tell you one thing. You are weak, you remain a weakling, and you'll never grow and never develop. You'll always be at the stage you are all the time, operating based on the, on the base of feelings and emotions. A topsy-turvy life, a seesaw life. Three steps forward and four steps backward. You're going nowhere. You're just spinning in mud. You're just a big wheel, but a false wheel as well. See? That is why I say to you that this part the Apostle Paul is dealing with is so vitally 
important. I saw very clearly the application of this passage. And it's significant that I was dealing with this section while he is coming. I had no idea. Never met the guy. Didn't even know he existed. And I didn't know that the Lord would use Romans chapter 5 at that juncture. To provide an answer for a man who is searching. Searching. The glory of God, the majesty of God, the sovereignty of God. The wisdom of God, the ways of God are past finding out. He's just so marvelous. You can't comprehend, you can't box him in. Be sure you join us again next time here on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy shows us four realities of sin shown in this section of Romans chapter 5. If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268 462 4230 or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gambles Terrace, Antigua.